Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, mine website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review a month of the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 11 in our series of 2023, and today's date is Friday, April the 14th. First, I'll be talking to Sharon Morris. General Manager, Australia New Zealand at the Chartered Institute of Procurement and Supply, talking about the importance of social procurement. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Groom about the future board of the RBA. But now let's talk to Sharon Morris. Now, uh, okay, so tell us about the importance of social procurement. I, I probably want to go back and tell you a little bit of a story about why I'm here. And it really largely is because of social procurement. I come from a background in the not-for-profit industry. I was CEO of the Mother's Day Classic Foundation. And what was important to me there was working in a space that had impact on people's lives. So raising funds for breast cancer research. And when this role came up, I looked at the impact that procurement and supply chain can have on community and planet and also profit. And I thought, hang on a minute, this impact is wider and potential to reach more people by leading the Chartered Institute here in Australia and um, New Zealand. So I'm here because of things like social procurement, because of modern slavery, because of ethics. If we train our procurement and supply community with the right skills to do the right things by society, then then I'm in because that's going to make a difference for our community. So I've sort of gone a long way to answer a question, but in, in terms of social procurement, and where that sits for SIPs is it's incredibly important because we can see the impact that it has on the community and particularly right now as we're building back better. So it's our role at SIPs is really about ensuring that our community and our, in terms of our community, our members and the procurement community have the right skills to tackle procurement in an innovative way and in a way that's better providing the public goods. So I, I hope that helps answer, but I can I can elaborate a little bit more. Well, well, certainly, though, the to confirm uh, social procurement is very much about procurement for the betterment of society. It is indeed. It is indeed. So that's that shared value or that social value that we refer to that goes beyond the goods and, and services being provided. It's about that impact that's really focused 
not just on profit, but it's really relevant also to people and planet. And I think that's probably what's what's most significant and particularly why the Chartered Institute of Procurement and Supplies partnered in, in a social procurement research because, you know, it's really our purpose to ensure that our procurement and supply chain management professionals, that they and their procurement functions have those capabilities to really deliver sustainable goals for their organisation. Now, just expand on your point, who are the members of your organisation? Yeah, good question. So the members from both come from both procurement and supply chain management. We're a global network and they're, they largely are people working in procurement and supply. So that could be someone at a tactical level right through to that more senior strategic advanced professional. And we have membership. The MSIPS is probably the highest membership in terms of the standard, but we have affiliate members and we also have a growing, a significant number of growing student members, which is a really interesting dynamic, particularly in a pandemic. And we're seeing more and more people turn to actually getting professionalised in procurement and supply. Now, the issue, I guess, for a lot of them is to how to track their social outcome goals. Would that be right? Yeah, I think um, I think that is an issue. I think measurement is something that's definitely come up more often than not and a lot of conversations happening around procurement and supply community about how to track it because some of those elements are, are really hard to define but I think also it's a growing awareness from the whole of organisation and from procurement and, and supply professionals that need to understand and measure that value is certainly the challenge. That's the challenge point that we're at right now. But providing research like we're providing through this uh, social procurement research helps us to really benchmark where we're at as a community and where we need to go. So I think measurement is absolutely key. Um, But it's certainly something that's challenging the profession in terms of how do we measure the value within an organisation? And there's um, lots of different organisations looking at that at the moment. Uh, There would be a whole lot of communication issues, wouldn't there, in in your organisations in terms of language issues and ethnic different ethnic groups etc in terms of dealing working with with social enterprises in terms of working with social enterprises yes yes. i'm not sure that they're the greatest issues i think probably the way that we do business traditionally in terms of our tenders they're quite complicated processes there's many boxes they need to tick the volume of a social enterprise, they may not be able to deliver a, deliver a volume that a, you know, a, a corporate brand requires. So we, what the challenge is that we need to think differently. We need to go into partnership with various social enterprises. We need to work with our suppliers. We need to engage and talk to our suppliers, what their challenges are, and help them meet that. So definitely language and, and could, could be a, a barrier, but I think it's it's deeper than that because you can have a conversation and you can understand each other. It's those processes and procedures that we need to help them overcome to be able to provide and that um, organisations can procure from them. What uh, role do digital technologies and uh, process improvement take in this? Probably not my expertise in terms of the digital side of things. I think the more, yeah, probably probably not in, in respect to the social procurement survey. It's probably something that I've, I've I couldn't answer on, on yeah. Uh, and so, but you'd also have to work with different levels of government to understand the risks and opportunities, wouldn't you? Yes, it's government that are actually driving social procurement. So, and what this research has shown us, that the, the motivation for social procurement is, A, one, the reputation, their reputation and the demand from stakeholders, but the fact that it's being regulated is is huge. So here in Australia, the Indigenous policy of 3% spend, 
agency spend um, on Indigenous business. And also the New Zealand government also have man mandated 5% on Maori and Pacifica businesses as well. So I think I think that's been huge and I think then that will then drive what's happening elsewhere. But I also think the corporate sector, and that speaks to the results of the research, the corporate sector are seeing what their reputation and their stakeholders have on working, you know, in, in them demanding that they work with local communities and social enterprises, then I think that's a big shift as well. So it's not so much all the different levels of government, it's actually government driving the change, which is really, really important. How, how significant has COVID been in all of this? How much has it driven a much of this? Yeah, really significant. So what we've found is a, a lot of the offshore you know, business has been shut down. So we've had to find alternatives during the pandemic with the borders closing. Um, so what's that done is it's really driven the focus on, well, what, what suppliers have we got locally? And I think that focus has even been broadened because we're also wanting to build back better. We're wanting to support our community and see it thrive. So people have really turned their attention to looking at how we can get social enterprise businesses, how we can work with them to be able to not only invest in our local community, but also get products in for for the for the for our supply as well. So I think that has been significant, and it's certainly a way that government is focusing their energies in being able to um, improve the community and and the economies in their community by by looking inwards and seeing how we can work together that way. I think I think uh, certainly COVID has changed the mindset, hasn't it, of governments oh. and communities. Hasn't it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it's forced us to think differently. Oh, you know, we just don't sort of sit, sit back and, and, you know, find the cheapest product. We actually look at value not being the cheapest product. We look at value as to what it can bring back to the community, to the planet, but it also can help our bottom line. And that's what social procurement does, particularly in, a, in an environment or a situation where we're really faced with lots of economic challenges. If we can support a local social enterprise and that money that's going to support them then be flowed back into the community it really is a win-win. I mean COVID will be around for some time I would imagine it will continue to be around uh, for some time and but using some science fiction here by any chance COVID gets managed sometime down the track maybe years from now will that still have an impact will that still have had an impact on procurement? Oh, with, without it yes yes absolutely on a number of different ways the way that we can communicate and work with people has completely changed. We're all working virtually and we're all able to reach more communities by working virtually. So the style of how we build our relationships is, is absolutely different. But it'll need to be, in terms of our supply chain, it'll need to be a bit of blend. It'll need to be local supply as well as, as, as out into the international supply. We'll need to be thinking differently about how and what stockpiles we have, how much stockpiles we have, and where we're going to get that, where we're going to keep that. So I think the mindset is definitely changed we're really focused on risk and resilience what happens when this happens next time are we ready for it and how are we going to mitigate that risk so what that points to from our perspective from the chartered institute of procurement and supply is do our procurement professionals have the right capabilities for the future because they need to think about risk they need to think about value not being priced they need to think about you know mitigating that and being really resilient for the future. So it's some new skills that we're bringing in to the profession as well as a new mindset. And I would imagine as time goes on, we're going to see more skilled 
procurement specialists coming in as a result? Oh, absolutely. So in, in Australia and New Zealand, we're a fairly small, probably fairly immature profession in that it's not as widely known, but it's growing. And what we're seeing is after the pandemic is, or during the pandemic is the profession has really been amplified because it's critical. We need, we need toilet paper. We need all these different supplies. So people have realised, oh, there are people that do this. And I think what's pleasing from my perspective is I'm seeing a lot of emerging young people come into the profession and saying, this, this is the career for me. And they're choosing to be in procurement and supply. Our role is setting the standards. So we have a global standard and that standard is to reach MSIPs. So it's it's almost like your, your accounting CA or CPA, that there's a standard for the profession so that we know if we give people the, the skills to MSIPs, they've got the right foundation. So we're seeing students come into this pathway, which is really exciting. And so in time, procurement specialists will become uh, specialist occupations and uh, specialist professions. Well, they yeah. already are. They absolutely already are. So, uh, you know, we've seen it. We've got a membership community across uh, across the region. There, there are already those that have, you know, that, that strategic capability who are leading procurement functions and moving on into CEO roles because it's a quite a broad role being a, a procurement leader and there's many skills. There's the soft skills, the relationship management, the supplier relationship management, the, the negotiation, the dealing with resilience, you know, all those soft skills. And then there's the technical skills of actually buying and and that's you know contract management and the like so quite a broad range of individuals you know quite a broad range of skills that these individuals have so it's our role to support them and make them succeed and it will be creating a new pool of ceos in the future well but potentially yes <laughs> okay okay well sharon it's been lovely talking to you thank you very much for your time and now let's talk to economist nicholas green nicholas so you've been discussing the makeup of the rba board with the economist colleagues of yours now the basic view is we need the board populated by experts in economics but you have a different view what, what are your concerns about that uh well we do have a board that is predominantly got economic experts on it the reserve bank itself is full of economic experts and the staff and the governor have a very powerful influence. And the question really is, should every member of the board be an economic expert? Now, the the argument in favour is that they're basically an economic outfit. They're attending to economic questions and they need to get that right. So it seems completely obvious that the people on the board need that kind of expertise. There is a history with the bank in which, uh, and I think this came, this was very well exposed during the accord years of the Hawke-Keating government when you had a, a kind of compact between business, the unions and the uh, and the government to try and deliver certain kinds of outcomes. And in that context, the fact that the board had some business people on it and it also had a unionist on it made some kind of sense as a as part of a social compact. In other words, that the sort of intelligence you needed to use in in setting interest rates and in running monetary policy involved some of that kind of social, social intelligence. I didn't know, I, I was persuaded that that was quite a good, uh, it was quite a good case for that by Ted Evans, who was the Secretary of the Treasury, and he supported it at the time and for for reasons that i've i think i've intimated in what i've just said to you so so it seems to me uh, but but i think you can take it further and say that 
economists have suffered from groupthink. The discipline itself produces a fair bit of groupthink. And therefore, uh, having a few people who are not kind of from, from you know, economic central casting can actually add to the social intelligence of the board. I, I, I stress also, as Ted Evans stressed, that even if you are a unionist and you're on the board, you do not represent your organisation or its position. You are there as with your own background, representing yourself and your own capacity to think through the issues and, and, and be responsible for what the board decides. So basically, your concerns are about the breadth of vision and the need for wider consent considerations of pure economics. Uh, that's right. But then later on, this this was a discussion you can you can uh, follow on Twitter. Uh, later on, I came back to the, to the discussion because I found a way, I thought, to express my concern. And I said, and so I tweeted this to all the people, many of, many of whom were orthodox economists who were kind of aghast at what I was saying. I said, I finally come up with at least one criterion I know all us rational evidence-based folks can agree on regarding RBA board members. At least a certain number should be people who didn't fall for the line that bef just before the global financial crisis, we were having what was called the great moderation. So people like Alan Greenspan, lots of economists believed that what was happening is we'd had an un unparalleled record of growth and that that was partly because risk was being more effectively distributed throughout the economic system. That was complete baloney, uh, as it turned out in hindsight. And in fact, what the system was doing was that it was concealing from itself the fact that it was concentrating risks. And that was, in fact, what happened in the global financial crisis. So what I was trying to say was that experts are far too overconfident, particularly experts in economics, and that if we really want to take this agenda seriously, I, I don't particularly want to argue for the historical state of the world in which there's an, a, a, there was a unionist and a business person or several business people on the board. But I do want to say that the board, that the whole idea of a board is for there to be some social intelligence, some back and forth, some contrarianism, and so that we get better thought through decisions. And I think it's been a problem, a big problem for the bank in, in the last decade or two. Uh, groupthink has been a big problem. And that is, I think, what should be centre uh, in the centre of our minds when we think about who should be on the RBA board. But you think that raises larger questions about forecasting. What are those? So then I start thinking to myself that there, there is a, a, I'll use the word scandal there. <laughs> Uh, in I think it was 2015. No, uh, yeah, no, I think it was in 2015. The Philip Tetlock published a book called Super Forecasting. Now, here's a guy who had shown in a previous book that experts added very little to well-informed amateurs when it came to making predictions about the world. This is true of predicting things like whether the Berlin Wall will fall, but it's also true in economics. And his next book tried to ask the question, how do you produce people who are good at forecasting? 
and he produced a list of the characteristics of good forecasters. I'll just read some of Philip Tetlock's psychological profile of a super, of a really good forecaster. Uh, that is a really good a person who's really good at thinking about what's going to happen in the future, the sorts of risks that are in front of us, and so on. They are curious, humble, uh, non-deterministic. In other words, they're aware that there are constant surprises that life gives us constant surprises. They're actively open-minded, intelligent and knowledgeable with what he calls a need for cognition. That is, they recognize things they don't understand. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Then they start to try to scope them out and work out, uh, try to either work out the extent of their ignorance or, uh, and also to chip away at that ignorance to, to learn a bit more. They're reflective, introspective, and self critical. They're numerate, pragmatic, analytical. Uh, I, I, I could go on. Are those things taught in economic schools? Not particularly. Are they taught to economic forecasters in economic schools? They absolutely are not, I continue. So, at and, and the scandal is that what Philip Tetlock has talked about has more or less passed economists by. This is a, e- even economic forecasters. I was talking to a reasonably senior person, probably at the top of the, I think it's, well, uh, probably just before just before that you get into the senior executive service, or he may have been somewhat junior in the senior executive service. He was in treasury. He was, he was in the forecasting team. And I I talked about Philip Tetlock's book on super forecasting, and I asked him what he thought of it, and he said, what is that? That's terrible. And if you read Reserve Bank speeches, central bank speeches around the world, or these kinds of perspectives, they're very thin on the ground. And and, and that's the sort of thing that I want to bring more into economics and should be brought more onto the Reserve Bank Board. And in fact, on all the central banks around the world. Uh, Exactly, exactly. Because those skills that you've mentioned are not that much seen. No, no, no. And they're not skilled. What what is taught in an economic school is a, a part of techniques. And in fact, you can pass your exams and you can even get articles published and you can become quite a successful academic with the application of those techniques, even if they're applied in the wrong circumstances. And while one remains oblivious to the wider questions about is my particular expertise here shedding much light or are there other, are there other considerations I should be bringing into my analysis 
to be more aware of what I know and what I don't know. And in fact, I'll I'll just I'll just uh, conclude on, by saying who are the forecasters who've got this right? Weather forecasters. Weather forecasters have got about three times better in the last few decades. Econ- economic forecasters have got no better at all. And why? Well, part of the reason, an important part of the reason, is that every forecast that a that a weather forecaster gives you is a probabilistic forecast, one of Tetlock's commands. You you don't hear you don't hear from a weather forecaster it's going to rain tomorrow. That might be what you what what you hear, but what they say is there will there is a seventy five percent chance of rain tomorrow, and that gives you a way of working out how good they are because you look at the chances and you compare how many times when they said it was a seventy five percent chance of rain did it rain. You backtest all this stuff, and so you learn about the limits of your knowledge. Okay. And economists are amazingly bad at this. Well, Nicholas, that is quite enlightening, and thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, the International Monetary Fund trimmed its global growth outlook and warned recession risks have grown on tremors in the banking sector. The IMF now sees global economic growth at 2.8% in 2023, slightly below its estimate of 2.9% in January. Risks to the outlook are squarely to the downside, the IMF said. Much uncertainty clouds a short and medium-term outlook as the global economy adjusts to the shock of 2020-22 and the recent financial sector turmoil. Recession concerns have gained prominence, while worries about stubbornly high inflation persist. There's been a recent crisis of confidence in the banking system. Silicon Valley Bank and Signature failed after a run on deposits last month while other specialist lender Silvergate was forced to wind down operations. Overseas, Credit Suisse was bought by rival UBS after concerns around the Swiss lender's health. There is a significant risk that the banking turmoil will tighten global financial conditions more than anticipated, which would further weaken business and consumer confidence, the IMF said. Additionally, the Federal Reserve has continued to raise interest rates in a bid to combat inflation, and some economists have warned that its aggressive stance has raised the odds of a recession. And Tupperware, the US maker of food storage containers, has warned that it could go bust unless it can quickly raise new financings. The 77-year-old firm said there was substantial doubt about its ability to continue as a going concern. Tupperware has been attempting to reposition itself to a younger audience, but has failed to stop a slide in its sales. Neil Saunders, Managing Director of Retail at the Consulting Global Data, said Tupperware has failed to change with the times in terms of its products and distribution. Mr Saunders said it was doubtful whether Tupperware could do enough now to turn itself around. He said if the company had made changes 10 years ago, such as selling in shops or through wholesale, it may be in a different position now. However, the brand name is still well known, he said, and the company could appeal to a retail giant such as Walmart, which used to own Asda, or even Amazon. And the Albanese government is optimistic that a breakthrough over China's punitive tariffs against Australian barley paves the way to lifting the remaining trade sanctions that crippled $20 billion of exports at the height of political tensions between Canberra and Beijing. In a big backdown by Beijing over its campaign over economic coercion against Australia, China will conduct a snap review of its tariffs on barley, potentially allowing it to avoid an adverse ruling by the trade umpire. Under the deal brokered by officials, Australia will suspend its World Trade Organisation appeal against the tariffs for three months, and a fourth if required, while the expedited review is underway. A favourable outcome should be a guide for resolving the other Australia-China trade case before the WTO, involving tariffs on Australian wine, Foreign Minister Penny Wong and Trade Minister Doug Farrell said. And the Grattan Institute has warned that Australia is staring down another decade of budget deficits, 
unless the federal government implements sweeping reforms, including cutting superannuation tax concessions, reining in the NDIS and lifting the GST to 15%. It also says the government should redesign the so-called stage 3 tax cuts so that are less generous to the highest income earners. It also suggested limiting negative gearing so investment losses cannot be written off against unrelated labour income, raising about $2 billion annually. Other revenue measures include a new 10% Commonwealth royalty on offshore gas, which would raise $4 billion annually, and uncosted measures to introduce a carbon tax and an inheritance tax. Reining in the rapidly expanding National Disability Insurance Scheme by providing additional support outside the program would also take pressure off the budget. And Milk Run, the rapid-run local delivery service, will close and make its staff redundant, bringing an abrupt end to a company which raised one of the biggest early-stage funding rounds in Australian venture capital history. Deteriorating economic conditions have made it difficult for the company's founder, Danny Millen, to raise fresh fund, and he told staff on Tuesday the cash-burning Milk Run would be shut down by the end of the week. While Milk Run, the largest of the local delivery companies and its peers, changed how younger inner-city consumers in Sydney and Melbourne shopped, it is also facing increasing competition from Woolworths and Coles, who have aggressively invested to match newer operations. Milk Run launched in Sydney in 2021, creating a network of warehouses, dubbed Dark Stores, which stock up grocery products and enable delivery riders on e-bikes to get groceries to customers in 20 minutes or less. Customers are ordered through a mobile app. And a company that provided services to both Woolworths and Coles that spectacularly collapsed late last year owes $5 million to creditors' financial records have revealed. Melbourne-based Red Cycle, which offered Australia's largest soft plastics recycling program, went under after it was revealed hundreds of millions of bags and other soft plastics were secretly stored in warehouses and not recycled. Launched in 2011, the company was declared insolvent after it failed to pay storage fees on the thousands of tonnes of plastic, despite earning $20 million from the Coles and Woolworths program that had run for the previous decade. In February, Woolworths and Coles said they would take on responsibility for tonnes of stockpiled soft plastic being stored in 32 sites, but secret stockpiles of plastic bags continue to be found. At least a dozen new sites have been located in the past month, including in Tasmania, Queensland and Western Australia. With a limited soft plastic recycling capacity in Australia and the potential that some material will no longer be suitable for recycling, it's possible parts of a stockpile would go to landfill. And a diagnostic company, backed by mining billionaire Andrew Forrest, is donating thousands of PCR tests to Papua New Guinea to avoid Australia's closest neighbour becoming a hotspot for new COVID-19 variants. Less than 5% of PNG is vaccinated against COVID-19, placing the country at a greater risk of becoming a breeding ground for coronavirus mutation. The pandemic has shown how fast such variants can circulate the globe, and medical technology startup Speedex is moving to ensure that doesn't happen. The company, which attracted $5 million for Andrew and Nicola Forrest's Health Technology Investment Fund, 10 Mile, earlier this year, builds molecular tests that help doctors identify infections and the best treatment option. It comes after the Forrest's private investment group, Tatarang, launched 10 Mile last August, with an initial capital allocation of $250 million to spend on unmet medical needs that support sustainable and equitable health care. Currently, PNG sends COVID-19 test samples to Australia for sequencing to identify variants of the virus, a process that can take up about two weeks. The donated materials work on basic sequencing test machines and significantly increase access to COVID-19 tests, which will ensure effective test, trace, isolate and treat strategies as well as early identification and containment of new variants. But Speedex is not only focusing on bolstering PNG's COVID-19 response, but is also assisting the company in surveillance of influenza and sexually transmitted infections via pathology-based testing. 
And essential workers are spending about two-thirds of their income on housing, on average, as a housing affordability crisis prices them out of their communities and exacerbates staff shortages across Australia. New analysis has found early childhood educators, aged care workers and cleaners are among the hardest hit as they are being forced to spend more than three-quarters of their income, on average, on renting a place to live. The Coalition of Welfare and Housing Advocacy Organisations behind the Everybody's Home campaign has released a new paper comparing data on rent against the full-time award wages of people in 15 essential worker categories who are living alone. The Price Out report says essential workers have lost an average of six hours from their weekly income to rent increases, which works out to a loss of 37 days pay each year since before the pandemic. Typical unit rents across the country have increased by 31% over the past three years, from $372 per week in March 2020 to $489 in March 2023. People on the lowest award rates are now being left with only $20 a day after paying rent, based on the capital city average, according to the report. Everybody's home which released a study to bolster its calls for the federal government to ramp up in investment in social and affordable housing, says rising rents means means essential workers are likely to be in serious financial stress or relying on their partner's income. Furthermore, the rental crisis means many essential workers can't afford to move to parts of the country that are most in need of staff, while others, such as those in aged care, are leaving the profession altogether in favour of higher-paid work. And the Melbourne man who invented mobile wireless FTPOS in the 1990s Daniel Elbow believes that Australians will soon need to carry a wallet-sized personal security card to access banking and basic services to protect against the unstoppable threat of cybercrime. ComputerShare co-founder Tony Wales and trucking magnate Ian Coots are among the investors who have already poured $125 million into Mr Elbow's venture, VeroGuard, which has been working on a solution to prevent cybercrime for the past 20 years. VeroGuard has invented the VeroCard, a multi-factor authentication device the size of a business card. It offers the same level of protection as a bank transaction during online use, according to the Vero Guide website. Mr Elbaum said the device was already being used by defence forces and intelligence agencies, and it was only a matter of time until it became commonplace, replacing cards and passwords. And Australia's largest media companies are warning the federal government its proposed privacy law reforms would allow affluent people, politicians and celebrities to avoid scrutiny and could inundate the court system. The Australia's Right to Know Coalition, a group of major Australian publishers, fiercely opposes proposed changes to the Privacy Act and claims it could have a devastating impact on journalists' ability to do their jobs. In a submission to Attorney General Mark Dreyfus' review of the Act, the group argues the government's approach to reform is not evidence-based and misunderstands the role of news reporting. Increased regulation will lead to a suppressed media which violates the implied freedom of political communication, says a submission from the group which includes Nine, the ABC, Guardian Australia, the West Australian and News Corp Australia, owner of the Daily Telegraph, Herald Sun and the Australian. The Attorney General's Department released in February its review of the Privacy Act, a report that proposes a way for people to sue for serious invasions of their privacy. The Department has sought submissions in response to its set of proposals from the sector. The changes have been considered as a way to better protect Australians from intrusions into their homes and digital lives, but similar laws overseas, such as the UK, have allowed bankers and celebrities to suppress true but embarrassing stories such as of affairs and drug use. And new home building has slumped by 27% from its pre-pandemic high of five years ago, choking off housing supply just as Australia grapples with surging local and immigrant demand and a sharp drop-off in purchasing by mum and dad investors who enabled the last big boost of new apartments and townhouses for rental stock. Analysis of ABS data shows quarterly home building starts had fallen to 45,489 by the September quarter last year after rising to a high in the pre-pandemic period of 62,000 
275 in March 2018, split evenly between houses and apartments. These figures reveal how after a debt and incentive fueled spike in, in detached housing, now playing out with brutal consequences for builders such as Porter Davis and their customers, the country finds itself badly short of homes just as migration resumes. As in past cycles, surging demand and higher rental and purchase prices will eventually trigger more supplies. But it will not be like last time, when offshore and domestic investors lifted the country's housing stock with a swell of apartment construction that peaked in mid-2015. Experts say the billions of dollars needed to fund the country's next major boost in housing stock, over and above the historically consistent supply of detached homes to meet owner-occupied demand, will come from institutions such as local superannuation funds, global pension funds and insurers. Thousands of Porter Davis customers hoping for a white knight home builder to swoop in and finish their incomplete homes have been dealt a blow. After liquidator talks with dozens of parties failed to identify any capable of taking over all 1,700 stalled builds. Liquidators have rejected as not credible a left-field offer from a would-be white knight to buy collapsed construction firm Porter Davis Home Groups. Melbourne businessman Amit Miglani, who was chief executive of MIG and Sons, revealed on Sunday that he had submitted a bid to purchase Porter Davis, which went into liquidation last month, leaving about 1,700 projects in limbo in Victorian Queensland, with another 779 contracts signed. The offer was to buy the business outright in a move that he claimed would keep all staff employed, protect homeowner deposits and see all projects under contract completed. However, a spokesman for the liquidator Grant Thornton Australia said they have engaged with dozens of parties who have contacted them, expressing various levels of interest in Porter Davis. As advised to customers last week, while there is a genuine interest in parts of the Porter Davis group, the liquidators have not identified any parties that are willing and capable of taking over all builds of Porter Davis customers as part of a single sale transaction, Grant Thornton said in a statement on Monday. And cybersecurity experts have warned the rate at which criminal gangs and state actors are targeting the healthcare sector is accelerating because of the ability to cause significant damage, which increases the likelihood of being paid a ransom or to steal cutting-edge research, a report has found. Leading cybersecurity body CyberCX has found that while healthcare companies had previously ranked cyber threats low on their list of concerns, with only 40% of health insurers listing it as a material risk in their annual reports, the nation is now in the midst of a national data reckoning following high-profile data leaks Adoptus and Medibank. The report found that healthcare was one of the most targeted sectors because it hit the sweet spot of providing essential services and holding a high volume of sensitive data, which criminals knows hurts and causes damage when released. And supermarket and petrol station bosses are warning the federal government's faces as much as a $5 billion hole punched in its budget from lost tobacco excise and uncollected GST caused by collapsing tobacco sales as smokers switched illicit tobacco, counterfeit smokes, and an explosion in vaping. Independent supermarkets, petrol stations, convenience stores and the corner stores have witnessed a sharp fall in tobacco sales from their store counters as a skyrocketing price of legal tobacco encourages demand for illicit, counterfeit and loose tobacco known as chop-chop, with smokers looking to save money amid costs of living pressures. The huge popularity of prohibited e-cigarettes or vaping is also robbing legitimate retailers of sales, which in turn, and combined with the massive, massive growth in illicit tobacco, is seeing lost collections of tobacco excise and GST. The threat to the Treasury's forward estimates, estimated by the Australian Association 
of convenience stores to be as much as $5 billion was laid bare recently by one of the nation's largest independent supermarket chain, Richie's, in a presentation two weeks ago to its key food grocery suppliers. And the nation's biggest banks and financial services companies will be summoned to a series of unprecedented wargaming exercises to test how they would respond to debilitating cyber attacks that could upend the lives of tens of millions of Australians. Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill said recent attacks on Optus, Medibank and Latitude Financial were just the tip of the iceberg when it came to damaging cyber attacks and the government was preparing for more profound breaches. The crippled critical infrastructure assets such as the water supply and electricity grid. O'Neill said the government had begun a series of cybersecurity exercises with the banking and finance sector because of its importance to the functioning of the economy. The government ran a three-hour tabletop exercise with representatives from the Reserve Bank, Australian Securities Investments Commission, Australian Prudential Regulation Authority and Australian Federal Police last month to examine how they would respond to attacks involving the threat of sensitive data and encryption of information technology. Similar exercises will be held with individual banks before the government moves on on to the aviation sector and other critical infrastructure network. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Mark Fazio, the co-CEO of Mate, an independently owned Sydney-based challenger telco provider that has taken on the big players in the industry through great customer service and exceptional value for their customers. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest unemployment figures. In the meantime, catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. If you want to contact me, email me at leon at leongetler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.